Hi, and welcome to Stefan Levera Podcast, a show about Bitcoin and Austrian economics. Today for episode 340, my guest is Peter Young, and he works for various organizations, but in this one we speak mostly around his efforts with the Free Private City Foundation. And so we're talking about El Salvador on the ground, as well as Free Private Cities. We cover a little bit about Bitcoin and Lightning in the real world, what it really costs to do merchant processing, as well as discussing what's going on with free private cities, some of the Honduras Zetas, as well as the Liberty in Our Lifetime conference. This show is brought to you by Swan Bitcoin, the easy way to purchase and learn about Bitcoin. Now with Swan, if you are a high net worth individual or you are acting with an entity like a business or a trust, you can look into Swan Private. Swan Private gives you unlimited access to experts and seasoned hands. Swan Private has full support for trust, business and other entity accounts and you will also receive expert guidance on choosing the right custody option for your assets and you also get exclusive access to the Swan Private Insight monthly research report. So if you're interested to sign up, go and check out swanprivate.com. Brains are a Bitcoin mining company through and through, and they offer various products and services. They've got Brains OS Plus. This is custom firmware you can install on your ASIC machine to stack more sats. It's got auto tuning, which optimizes the miner performance, so you get more hash rate for your electricity bill. And Brains is happy to announce that Brains OS Plus now supports Bitmain and miner models S19, S19 Pro, T19, and S19J, and Antminer, S19J, and Wattsminer models are next in the development pipeline. Also, you are supporting Stratum V2, which is the next generation Bitcoin mining protocol. You are improving your privacy and protecting yourself against hash rate hijacking with end-to-end encryption, and you are reducing the bandwidth loads for miners in remote locations. So for that website, go to brains.com, that's brains with two eyes. And if you want to get started with Bitcoin mining, Compass Mining are making it easy for you to do this. So if you're in the US, you can order an ASIC machine to your home and you can mine at home and use the various guides and resources that the Compass Mining team are making available for you. Another option, if you don't want to mine on your residential electricity rates, you can use a facility that has been vetted by the Compass team. So your Bitcoin mining machine will be sent to that facility. You can then have that machine plugged in. You obviously pay for the hosting fees and you select the mining pool to point your hash rate towards and then you are now receiving KYC free SATs. So this is a great way to get started without technical knowledge. So compassmining.io, they've got all sorts of options there. Some of them are new machines, some are second hand machines which may come online faster and they've also got a newsletter so you can subscribe to get updates that's compassmining.io and now on to the show with peter young peter welcome to the show great to be here stefan thanks for having me so peter i know you've uh, been doing a bunch of things in this whole bitcoin and citadels space free private cities of course that you're working with and of course i had the pleasure of meeting you in el salvador about a month or two ago and uh I wanted to get your views uh, from on the ground. What's it like there, as well as discuss a little bit about what's happening in the free private cities world. Uh, so for any listeners who don't know you, just give us a little bit of a background on yourself and where you're at with Bitcoin and, of course, Austrian economics. Thanks, Stefan. So I'm a Bitcoin consultant and I mainly work for three clients. Uh, the first of them is the Free Private Cities Foundation, which is an organization dedicated to creating voluntary cities and hopefully eventually a more voluntary society. I also work for Safety Namus, the author of the Bitcoin Standard, and he's quite big in the kind of Bitcoin maximalist, Bitcoin only uh, space. And then I carry out work also economic analysis and writing for a wealth management firm based in Liechtenstein in Austria called Incrementum. And I've been traveling in uh, Latin America for the last couple of months. I've been really interested in what's going on in El Salvador and Honduras. Uh, The Free Private Cities Foundation, my main client, has uh, some relationships with some projects there. And um, I guess in terms of the background question, I've actually spent most of my career living and working in China, working in trade and investment. But I started to get really into Bitcoin and Austrian economics specifically uh, from around 2017. And that interest developed into uh, something that I wanted to pursue as a career. So uh, since last year, I've been working uh, full time in the Bitcoin space. And uh, it's been quite an adventure, quite a journey. And uh, I'm really glad to be chatting to you about it today. So, Peter, there's been a lot of talk in various directions about what's going on with El Salvador. We've got the Bitcoin law, the legal tender. We have the Chivo wallet. We have various people using Bitcoin and 
accepting it for payment. But on the other hand, we also have those who are detractors who are saying, well, you know, the wallet's not working that well or this, that and the other various uh, arguments that have been made. What's your perspective from the time you spent on the ground in El Salvador? Bitcoin adoption in El Salvador was really exciting. When I heard the news that a country was going to be adopting Bitcoin's legal tender, I was really keen to get over there. And luckily, I had this opportunity, uh, as you did, to come over and take part in the Adopting Bitcoin conference. And it was really exciting to go out there and see, because I was arriving uh, a couple of months after the legal tender law was introduced in early September, that there were many places where you could easily buy and sell, oh, sorry, buy and sell, buy things with, with Bitcoin. And as someone who's been, you know, who isn't a super OG, but who's someone who's been uh, quite involved in the space for a few years, that was really exciting. And uh, people are using Bitcoin in El Salvador, um, especially the big businesses that have a more uh, international customer base. They're using it and they've implemented some great technologies for uh, managing the payment system. But in general, it's still very early days, I'd say, in El Salvador. But if we think back to, how long it's taken for other financial innovations to really become large uh, globally, you know, like credit cards, for example, then I think actually the pace that things are moving forward is pretty quick. And there have certainly been some issues, some problems with Bitcoin adoption in El Salvador, which we can go into. But when we're looking at a more medium term to long term timescale, I think I'm very bullish about what's going on there and excited about the pace of development. Now, some might be thinking, well, what about the fluctuation in the exchange rate? So how does it work then when a supplier or a merchant rather in El Salvador wants to take payment for Bitcoin? So the vast majority of merchants in El Salvador that are using Bitcoin are using the Chivo wallet. Um, the latest stats I heard was something like 60% of transactions going over the Lightning Network are taking place via Chivo. Chivo is the government wallet that was set up in preparation for the announcement of Bitcoin as legal tender. And the, the main reason why Chivo is so widespread is because the government launched Bitcoin by giving every Salvadorian citizen 30 US dollars via this Chivo app. So there was a large incentive for large swathes of the population to download this app so they could claim their $30. And what that means is that they're able to, they all have the app and they're also able to use it to transact with each other. And another key feature of the Chivo app, uh, because the uh, one of the currencies that El Salvador uses is the US dollar, is the dominant currency, uh, and there's a lot of remittances from particularly the United States, but also Canada and Europe coming in from El Salvador in dollars. The Chivo wallet allows for free exchange between US dollars and Bitcoin. And that's a really key feature because it means that people from uh, El Salvador can interface with the US dollar system reasonably seamlessly and it can also uh, trade back and forth in terms of the question though of how they manage volatility basically people need to be aware that bitcoin's price in us dollars goes up and down and what the chivo app allows them to do is to just accept bitcoin uh, but hold a balance in us dollars so if they don't want to be exposed to that volatility they can just keep the us dollar balance and they can convert it to bitcoin whenever they want so they can take advantage of the upside volatility of Bitcoin, but also the downside, the downside is a risk that they would have to bear if they're holding in, in Bitcoin. Um, but uh, people have the option to do that through Chivo. And I think it's a learning process. People, as you will have observed through your time there, people are still not really understanding the difference between, say, Chivo wallet and what Bitcoin actually is and what a wallet is versus what the Bitcoin network is. So there are certainly people that don't quite get this and that are a bit annoyed when their balance goes down in US dollar terms. But again, uh, there are options for people that want to avoid this, this volatility and have specific USD denominated payment obligations they need to make. I see. And of course, they are able to use the Chivo ATM network as well, because Chivo is also an application, a smartphone application, but it is also the ATM network that allows people to go back and forth between Bitcoin and US dollar physical cash. And so I suppose for many Salvadorans, they may be using that also just to sort of go back and forth in some cases where if they are still purchasing things for cash as a cash-based economy, then maybe that's also an important factor there. 
I'm also curious as well, your thoughts on this idea. I'm sure you're familiar with the work of, say, someone like Vijay Boyapati, who talk, who speaks about this idea that Bitcoin should be or is most likely to be adopted first as like a reserve asset or as like a savings, as a collectible and then a wealth store of wealth before it's then used in a day-to-day context. Do you have any thoughts on that idea? Do you see that that part is what's going to happen first? Or do you actually see it more like there will be this kind of day-to-day receiving Bitcoin and spending Bitcoin for Salvadorans or people in El Salvador? Great question. And yeah, I'm a huge fan of Vijay and his ideas. I would tend to agree with what he said there. And the reason for that is that I think the key value proposition of Bitcoin really is that it's non-inflationary, non-centralized money. And when you have a system where people are already able to transact fairly seamlessly with fiat currency, because the problem with fiat currency is not a transaction usability problem. The problem with fiat currency is that it's inflatable. And that has profound societal impacts. So what people, I think, tend to, tend to think about when they think about money is how we solve the payments problem. But the payments problem with money is relatively trivial to solve. We all know how easy it is to pay with things on our debit cards. It doesn't work 100% of the time, but it's the way the, va- the vast majority of people in developed countries uh, transact these days. And we can look at countries like China, where they have centralized payment processing solutions like WeChat and Alipay. Uh, that have been in use for the best part of a decade, and they just work seamlessly. They're used absolutely everywhere. They're used across all demographics uh, of society in China. And it was, wasn't that difficult. I mean, <laughs> obviously, <laughs> uh, it, it wasn't trivial, but there are lots of examples where payment solutions that work seamlessly have been created. So people tend to think of that as the problem that Bitcoin solves. But I would tend to agree that that actually... The store of value and the uncensorability and the uncontrollability of the Bitcoin network is its key value proposition. And when you're talking about stores of value and inflation, it takes time for that difference to become apparent. So for people in El Salvador that are losing, depending on your metric for inflation, between 2% and say 25% of the value of their savings in US dollars every year, that does that difference doesn't manifest itself immediately. And when you have volatility in the in the US dollar price, people can think in the short term, oh, I've, I've lost out. But when you start looking at a period of years, that's when people that have held Bitcoin start to see, wow, like I have actually been able to protect my savings. And so I think it's to be expected that actually when you look at how Bitcoin's being used in El Salvador, uh, like as I think there is there is some use in, in um, transactions. Um, I would estimate somewhere like 1% of Salvadorans are regularly using Bitcoin for transactions. And there's some statistics um, that support that 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 figure as well, uh, but it's already taken something like five percent uh, of the overall remittance market in El Salvador, which is huge, and it's already being used quite widely as well. The Chivo wallet in particular is already being used to trade back and forth with Bitcoin, which suggests a more kind of like understanding of this asset as something that is you know has has uses as a, as an investment slash savings vehicle. So we're seeing that, and I think that's to be expected. And I think over time, we'll move towards that stage where it really does become a a medium of exchange, but that will take a larger market cap so that we have less volatility and pricing as a unit of account is more feasible. Yeah. Now, I broadly agree with you, but I think there's one other point, counterpoint that people might be thinking or might have heard. They might have heard some rhetoric or some arguments around this idea that, look, think how many people are totally unbanked in El Salvador. And this is actually part of what President Bekele's argument was around saying, look how many people have downloaded the Chivo wallet. We have more people using the Chivo wallet than all these people who have bank accounts. That actually there were all these people who previously were not able to access bank accounts and financial uh, products like you and I can with our debit cards and credit cards and, and the like, that that there's an argument around the access part there also. So I guess... To sort of summarize that, or how, like, would you summarize that as saying, well, there are some people who've gotten access to financial services in a sense now with Bitcoin, but still the more important part is the savings part? Or how would you, how are you thinking of that? I think that overall, it's the long term thing that excites me about Bitcoin is the economic change it stands to bring about through the removal of inflation and through taking money out of the hands of centralized power. But in the short term, there are 
issues which are incredibly important to the people of countries like El Salvador. And you raise a really important one, which is the financial access one. And as President Bukele has pointed out, only 30% of the population of El Salvador has a bank account. So that means that the rest are operating largely in a cash economy. But we're in a country where there are 1.6 smartphones per head of population. And actually, this is true virtually anywhere in the world that you go. Like The problem of owning smartphones, there's really not anywhere where it's really, really difficult to get a smartphone if you want one, if you're set on doing that. Um, there are obviously elderly people and there are some like very remote parts of the world where this isn't possible. But really, like smartphones are everywhere in the world right now. And they're, they're everywhere in El Salvador. And if you're an elderly person who's not particularly tech savvy, there'll be someone in your family who will be able to help you with those kinds of things. So what Bitcoin has done is it has given financial access for people that are willing to try and use the Chivo app or other Bitcoin wallets to really anyone in the population that wants to that wants to use it. And that's incredibly powerful because I'll give you an example. I was talking to some people down in Elizonte uh, where the Bitcoin Beach project uh, has uh, was lo- launched a couple of years ago. And they were saying that they had some problems regarding paying suppliers for a small business. And they used to have to go and actually hand physical cash to their suppliers once a week. And because of the having access to the Bitcoin Chivo wallet, they were able to just send the money to their supplier and get back that time for spending with their family or for doing more work or whatever they wanted to do. So there are actually real um, financial access problems. I think one of the tendencies people sometimes have when they're in Western countries is to kind of look on and say, oh, well, look how far behind El Salvador is. Really, the problem is they need to catch up with us. And I, like, there would be benefit to there being more financial access in El, El Salvador. But for me, the overall story with Bitcoin adoption is way, way bigger than that. And that's the thing that excites me. And that's the thing that I, I, I tend to focus my thinking around. Of course. And with the Chivo wallet, were you seeing any perception in Salvadorans who you were speaking with that they did they see Chivo as Bitcoin or did they also understand that Bitcoin is this open source network and that there are many, many wallets and services and providers? So my perception is that there's not a very deep level of understanding amongst the general population in El Salvador regarding what Bitcoin actually is. And that's understandable because Bitcoin in a way, it's very simple, but to actually understand how it works and the layers to it and some of these distinctions between, you know, wallet, what a wallet is, what the Bitcoin network is, what a Bitcoin is. These things do take a bit of sitting down and, and looking at to understand. And so because the vast majority of transactions are done on Shivo, and because this is the government wallet and because people tend to defer a bit more to government in El Salvador than they might do in other places. People are, I'd say, tending to equate Bitcoin and Chivo. And if there's a problem with the Chivo wallet, which and there have been a few problems which we could talk more about, like people tend to associate that as being a problem with Bitcoin and be a bit put off by that. And so I'd say that's a big issue. But there are, on the other hand, organizations uh, like My First Bitcoin, which are doing outreach work with communities across El Salvador. And they're trying to educate people about differences between Chivo and other wallets and Bitcoin and and, uh, the Bitcoin network and all these different things. And um, I was talking yesterday uh, to a friend uh, who works for the Ibex payment system. And he was saying that, you know, the thing to bear in mind about El Salvador is that there's a new Bitcoin born every day in El Salvador or like uh, created every day in El Salvador through what's happening. And the great thing about Bitcoin is that once you learn it, you kind of learnt it. And I think it's very rare for people who are orange-pilled to then become un-orange-pilled again, because once you start going down the rabbit hole and really do understand what Bitcoin is, then the story, the potential, the utility to you as a business or an individual becomes pretty apparent. And the more that grows, like I don't think that, you know, that is going to reverse. So it's, uh, it's exciting to see how, um, how people are adopting it. Um, but yeah, at the moment, there are certainly those che- uh, teething issues and there's certainly issues regarding perception of what Chivo is doing uh, and how that relates to Bitcoin. Speaking of issues or teething issues, problems around access, 
What kinds of things were you seeing at the last time you were in El Salvador? Of course, it seems like things are improving, but at least at the time you were there, what what was the state of play? There were uh, issues at the time uh, that I was in El Salvador in October, and there were issues uh, now. So one of the main issues that I thought, wow, this is a really big issue, was the problems with compatibility between the Chivo wallet and outside wallets. Because... When people are paying in Bitcoin, they're normally doing Chivo to Chivo. They're basically using a centralized payment system like Alipay or WeChat Pay. And so they have no problem. They scan a simple QR code, money goes from one account to another account, but they're not actually using Bitcoin. They're just operating on a centralized server. And so they can feel like it's working. But for people like me that aren't Salvadorian citizens, we don't have the Chivo wallet because you need a government ID in order to register for one or an address, I think, in El Salvador to register for one. So I wanted to interact um, with the Bitcoin network using my, my default wallet, which is the blue wallet. And what I found was that on-chain payments to, to a Chivo wallet were no problem. But when you wanted to do lightning payments, it was fine when you were sending it to the personal version of the Chivo wallet. But when you were using the merchant version, the first thing was that there are a number of steps that weren't particularly uh, user-friendly. The UX of the, of the product, it was not particularly well-designed. So I'd have to work there with the merchant and kind of talk them through about four steps they need to go through to accept my lightning payment. Um, And that that was the first issue. But the major issue was that actually there were technical problems whereby lightning payments were actually registered as leaving an outside wallet account and then they weren't being received by the Chivo wallet. And, you know, for a few dollars for me, it was like, okay, well, this this is annoying. But like, this is not something that can be happening regularly in El Salvador. Like if someone in El Salvador with a vast majority of people like can't, affi- like it's a really big deal if they lose some, some money on a transaction, uh, this can't be happening. And unfortunately, this is a problem with uh, Chivo Wallet. It's a technical issue that can totally be solved. And if you use other wallets, you'll realize how incredibly user-friendly the Lightning Network can be. And But I think the issue with Chivo, the reason why it's got these teething issues is just because it's trying to have this seamless interface with the US dollar, which is something that I think it is needed for El Salvador. But what that means is that sometimes you have these compatibility issues. And um, I'd add to this, Stefan, that it, around Christmas, there was an important update to the Chivo wallet. Um, so I wasn't actually in the country for this, but I've heard through some of my contacts there uh, that this has taken place. And what this meant was that the... Uh, personal wallet side of Chivo has improved quite a lot and now that's pretty seamless but there are still like these issues with the merchant merchant wallets on Chivo and so it's kind of annoying in a way I I don't want to be too critical of Chivo because they're pioneers they're trying to do something that's really new and they're trying to solve a difficult problem but I guess the solution that uh, people like me and organizations like my first Bitcoin try to promote is like where you can Operate on the Bitcoin network, understand that you can have your own wallet. It doesn't have to have anything to do with the government. And if you opt for these solutions, you can have an incredibly seamless experience using things uh, with Bitcoin. And of course, like Chivo is hugely important and I really hope Chivo does well. But I'm worried to a certain extent in the short term, the technical issues that people are having with Chivo uh, will put some people off and delay their adoption of Bitcoin a little bit. And there are alternative payment processes, though, correct, right? OpenNode or Ebex Mercado also offer payment processing, but I suppose those are not free like the government one, or free, government subsidized. Correct, yes. So if you're using Ibex, you're paying, depending on what you do, you're paying between, you know, 0.7 and, say, maybe up to 2-3% uh, on every transaction that you do. Uh, the the main cost with, with something like Ibex comes when you start to interface again with US dollars. And so there's a conversion fee on that, which I think is something like 1.5%. And when you process a payment in Bitcoin, you're paying, I think it's 0.7% just as a standard fee, plus what you pay on the Lightning Network. So that's probably about 1% that you're paying. Now, of course, that is something that uh, is much lower than what you pay on Visa or MasterCard, where you're looking at 3 4 5% per transaction. and most people, I think, in Western countries don't realize how expensive it is to do a Visa MasterCard transaction because in Western countries, these costs are taken on by the merchant. 
But I'm here in Mexico at the moment in Tulum. And here and also other parts of Mexico, the standard practice is actually to have the customer take on this extra fee for processing a card payment. And so here it's really like in your face all the time like oh if i pay on card i've got to pay an extra four four to five percent and you start to realize hey this is a really big problem like four to five percent is a lot to pay per if you're doing this for every credit card transaction and so when i was in el salvador and i was paying directly in bitcoin i was paying people 0.3 percent so i was paying people a tenth of what was being paid uh what's being paid over here or when we use visa or mastercard and that's what we can get to if we get to a a point where economies are just functioning on Bitcoin, like with the technology we have today, we can get that down to 0.3%. And that's huge in terms of like costs and time uh, saved by merchants and, and, and customers. So uh, there are these payment solutions that do make it easier. They're way better than Visa and MasterCard. Um, they work seamlessly like OpenNode, Ibex, you mentioned them. Um, but yeah, if, if we get to a fully Bitcoin as economy, we can go way further and make that process even more seamless. Back to the show in a moment. If you're looking for a Bitcoin hardware wallet, I would suggest looking at the cold card by coinkite.com. Now the cold card, it looks like a little calculator and basically it can be used in very versatile ways. So you can set it up as a single signature hardware wallet and you can directly plug it into your computer using the USB cable to micro USB. That's if you're a beginner. And then if you're intermediate or advanced, you can use the SD card to air gap your hardware wallet. Also, you can use it as part of a multi-signature setup, and you can use it easily with wallets like Electrum or Spectre Desktop or Sparrow. Go to coinkite.com, use the code Levera to get a discount, and don't forget they also offer Seedplate and other products also. Unchained Capital are making it easy to use multi-signature as part of a collaborative custody setup. What does this mean? Well, you hold two keys in different locations and they can hold the third key for you and they can countersign if necessary. So instead of leaving your coins on an exchange or with a custodian, you can take that into your own hands. And so they can guide you through this process. They've got a concierge onboarding program. So you can go there, purchase the service, they will ship you the hardware wallets, they'll do a video call with you and teach you how to do the hardware wallets and how to set that up, the vault, and then ship some Bitcoin into that vault. And so you're getting started, you're being handheld along the way. So if you're interested in this, go to unchained.com, select the concierge onboarding program and use the code Levera for a discount on your onboarding program. Lend at HodlHodl is a peer-to-peer Bitcoin-backed lending platform, so you can lend or borrow stablecoins globally and anonymously. Sign up in just 30 seconds and borrow stablecoins without any verification. Deal directly with other people, and together you control that collateral throughout the whole deal with all the interest paid at the end. Now, on the other hand, if you have stablecoins, you can earn extra by lending them at the highest returns. You are issuing over-collateralized loans with the full interest guaranteed. Lend at HodlHodl. Lend and borrow stablecoins on your terms at your desired interest rates. No hidden fees, the terms and conditions are transparent, and users control the keys in the deal in escrow. Go and check it out. It's lend.hodlhodl.com. And now, back to the show. Yeah, right. And so as things mature, we'll see more and more people use Bitcoin and Lightning more natively. But it is a fair warning or reminder to people that these things are not free. Somebody still has to run that Lightning node. Somebody still has to manage the Lightning channels. Somebody still has to... There will still be on-chain open and closed fees associated with that, routing fees associated with that. And so probably as we speak today, as you say, it's probably something like 0.3%, 0.4% around that around that range. Uh, but when you consider that against the alternative of paying 3 4 5%, which is actually what credit card companies pay, and really what you're paying for there is often like a fraud aspect of it because they have to deal with the fraud risk or chargebacks and so on. And basically by the time you've dealt with all of that and the regulatory aspects of it, that's where the 3 4 5% comes in. So it remains to be seen what happens in, let's say, if we were to go down the track five years, ten years from now, and everyone, if all the people are spending directly natively in Lightning, what is the actual end ending fee really going to be? And also the important part, as you point, as you correctly say, is it a customer-born fee or is it a merchant-born fee? And so that will be obviously change things a little bit in terms of the perception because a customer thinks, oh, I don't have to pay a fee, but really it's just built into the price by the merchant. Exactly. Yeah. 
Yeah, so that's interesting to see about how that's happened. Were you seeing any benefits for Salvadorans? Was what kind of benefits were they seeing? Was it increased business? Was it a better user experience for the customer? What kinds of things were were you seeing? When I was in El Salvador, I made a visit to San Miguel, which is the largest major city near to the site where Bitcoin City is uh, going to be built. The new announced project by Nayib Bukele in um, uh, November. And I went there because I was really curious about this project. Um, you mentioned my association with free private cities in the in the introduction. And I just wanted to go and uh, find out what the perceptions of people were on the ground in in the area near to, to this site. And so I went around and I interviewed a lot of people about how they've been using Bitcoin. I started looking out for the Bitcoin or the Chivo signs on businesses. And it was stuff like, the the answers people gave me were things like it's helped to increase sales because I think partly there's a very practical side in the fact that suddenly everyone in El Salvador had 30 US dollars that they could spend through this app. And the merchants that were more savvy and cottoned onto that quickly did increase their sales because people were like, hey, I can use my Chivo dollars here and I can buy something. There's definitely an aspect to that. Um, there's also the suppliers issue, payment of supplies, which I mentioned earlier in the interview. I talked to someone in Conchawa. I, uh, she was uh, like quite a young uh, mobile phone saleswoman. And she was saying that uh, this kind of using electronic payments in general, as opposed to cash, was more hygienic. And that was the reason that she preferred to use Chivo. And then there were people that were telling me about the use of uh, Bitcoin to save and they liked the fact that they could save it when uh, the price went up and they could uh, sorry when they could spend it when the price went went up in US dollars and they could save it when it went down and they said that they kind of understood that it was going up and down and probably up in the long term so these were all uh, positive things that were said to me by by people uh, on the ground and and it's great to have like this these list of examples um at such an early stage you know and i think the the store of value thing will start to become bigger and bigger as time goes on. And also the, the kind of permissionless aspect of it will start to become bigger. Because as I'm sure you and lots of people in your audience would be aware, actually getting payments to properly go through uh, with our current system is a problem. Uh, much more than it is when you're just purely operating on the Bitcoin or the Lightning Network. Um, I much more frequently get problems uh, transacting with the fiat monetary system uh, than I do when I'm just using Bitcoin. You know, when I'm just operating on Bitcoin, sure, you can have issues when it's like a specific app, like Chivo has a problem. But with the fiat money, I mean, as I say, I'm here in Mexico, I'm meeting people, we're like sharing bills and things. And there's not, there are a few applications, but it's not trivial for me to split a bill with an American sitting around a table. Like we have to both have apps and we, it takes a bit of time. Whereas with Bitcoin, that's a trivial thing to do. And there are these kinds of advantages. Uh, like another example is the other day I was trying to book a flight. The payment went through twice. I still haven't been refunded for it more than a month later. Um, and then the money is just sort of sitting there in the banking system. You've got no idea where it is. You're just at the mercy of call centers, which can hold you on the line for an hour or more or whatever. And with Bitcoin, you know exactly where the funds are, whether they're in the mempool, whether they've they haven't left the account, whether they've been received. And so you can just go and look at these things yourself if you've got the technical know-how, I guess, and you can work out where the payment is or you can like people can provide that service for you. So there are also the permission aspects of Bitcoin, which I expect to become more and more important as people start to say, you know, like there are these things to prevent, prevent fraud, et cetera, et cetera. But these things could develop on the market, like wallet providers could could potentially uh, provide services like this um, with Bitcoin on top of Bitcoin if they are they are truly valued. But my suspicion really is that lots of these things, these fraud prevention, these regulatory things are really just, you know, ways of protecting vested interests and protecting the legacy system and uh, pushing people towards it rather than because they're really valued as highly um, as the price would suggest on the market. Yeah. Yeah, really interesting and valuable insights there in terms of how things are on the ground. And of course, I'm sure things will develop and become better and better over time as uh, more and more people learn about the benefits of using Bitcoin, the interoperable open system, as opposed to everyone trying to 
get into the same walled garden so they can transact with each other more easily. If it, so, that's uh, the hope longer term, certainly. Uh, I wanted to also chat about your visit to Honduras. I know you are, as you said, you're working with the Free Private Cities uh, organization, and I just find that very interesting. Obviously, I'm a big fan of citadels as an idea, and uh, I wanted to uh, yeah get your views on that also. So uh, perhaps you could just tell us a little bit about what you're doing with Free Private Cities and what's the association with Honduras then? Sure. The reason I became passionate about Bitcoin and there are people that are passionate about Bitcoin for a number of reasons because it's such a multifaceted technology and its implications, if you fully understand them, and if it continues to do what it's already doing into the future, I think are pretty profound. People get into it from the technical side. People get into it from the transaction side, the merchant side. But for me, from my teenage years, I was, I've always been interested in kind of moral social economic questions i got really into philosophy i did it at a level and had some really inspiring teachers and i went on to study that as part of my university degree so i'm more interested in these kind of bigger social economic kind of questions and the big aha moment for me with bitcoin was understanding how it could uh you know transform society and so the reason that i'm kind of interested in free private cities is because I'm interested in how society functions today and how society could be better. And I see Bitcoin as a really practical existing technology through which people that disagree with some of the ways in which the existing financial political system works can peacefully opt out and peacefully start to cooperate with other people that also share their ideas. But at the same time, the reality is that we live in a physical world. And we still need to have organizations that protect physical, rivalrous uh, property within the economy. And so whilst Bitcoin is helping to change many aspects of the world, I think there's also a need for innovation in the realm of governance. And that's the focus of the Free Private Cities Foundation. Free private cities are contract-based societies that are based on purely voluntary interactions between the people that are living in them and the people that operate them. So they run like companies. That's why the word private is in the title. And what they are essentially is, well, the way that they would work is that uh, a operating company buys a piece of land and offers a contract. So we're not talking like Jean-Jacques Rousseau's hypothetical social contract. We're talking about a real business contract, like the contracts that exist in the real world for services like our uh, you know, house rental, if we go to a hotel, there might be a contract. If we have some kind of mobile phone carrier, we might have a contract with them. There is a real written contract saying, these are the rules of our city, our community. This is what it costs to pay for protecting this community and giving you the basic access and services that you might need to run it, such as maintaining the basic infrastructure and maintaining the security. This is what it costs every month. If you want this service, you can come and pay for it. If you don't want this service, you're free to go elsewhere. And of course, you're free to leave any time you want, uh, as long as your contractual obligations that you agree to are, are fulfilled. So this is the model that we have. And it's a model that was invented by Titus Gable, who is a German uh, entrepreneur. And he's written a book, Free Private Cities, Making Governments Compete for You, uh, which I would really recommend to your listeners. Um, and this is so this is a theoretical model, but there are already uh, some projects that are starting to implement uh, parts of this model and that's one of the reasons that i was in honduras uh, last month because i wanted to go and visit for myself uh, some of the projects that are implementing free private cities type principles and i found that to be a really interesting and uh, experience and uh, something that i certainly learned a lot from so going further into the honduras example what's going on there what kind of uh, projects are there that are operating in this fashion so in Honduras, a new law was passed in 2012 that allowed for the creation of something called Zones for Economic Development and Employment. And the shorthand for that is ZS. And this was quite a unique piece of uh, legislation to be passed within Honduras because it allowed for the creation of 
special zones within the country of Honduras that don't that not only operate like the free trade zones that are so common around the world, places like Shenzhen, where the governments have a high degree of autonomy and can exercise their own fiscal decisions and they can lower taxes for their businesses and they can change their own labor laws for their businesses. But in addition, change their own labor policies rather, not labor laws. But in addition to that kind of um, administrative freedom, what the Honduran law allowed for is a high degree of legal freedom as well. So this is probably the most, I guess in a libertarian sense, the most forward thinking piece of legislation that's been adopted in terms of what it would, in theory, allow to happen with city or community autonomy. So when this happened, there were a number of people who are more aligned to the idea of voluntary communities who took notice of this. And I was chatting to some people yesterday, actually, who have come up with a concept for a Zede called Mariposa. And they kind of undertook this epic journey overland from Canada down to, uh, down to Honduras in order to try and implement a project uh, because people started to notice, okay, this actually does mean that we can create something that is more aligned to the libertarian voluntarist uh, mindset. And at the moment, there are three projects that own land within Honduras that are set up under the ZA uh, legislation. And those are at different stages of development. They're called Prospera, Morazan, and Orchidea. And there are another other of additional kind of concepts whereby there's a framework for setting up a ZA like Mariposa that I just mentioned, but haven't yet been implemented in practice um, for a number of practical reasons, which um, I could talk a bit more about if that's of interest. So when I went to Honduras, I visited two of these projects, Morazan first and uh, Prospera. And these are very different kinds of projects. But what was great about them was the fact that I was seeing, hey, this idea that I've read about in Titus Gable's book and find very attractive is actually being implemented to a large extent and I was able to learn what was going well there and what the challenges were and uh, come away with some fresh perspectives about about the idea of free private cities. Yeah so then as there are projects going on how much autonomy do they really get because sometimes it's like the government might say a certain you know, you've got this much freedom, but then what's it like in practice? Like, do they really have that much freedom in terms of what the laws are, what they can do and what kind of agreements they can set up? Yeah, it's a good question. So the key thing that they've been able to do so far is the stuff that's more on the traditional SEZ side, special economic zone side. So, for example, they've been able to change their pricing structure, like in Morazan, for example. Um, they're, they're, this isn't a purely libertarian model there are certain restrictions that you you have to that these ZAs have like they have to have some kind of income tax for example but within Morazan um they've lowered that to i think it's like 5% income tax for the business so it's incredibly low and they're also able to uh, hire people and uh, operate their business in a way that's much more cost effective so what we're seeing at this stage is the more traditional liberal kind of economic side of of the change coming in um, but then again, that's that's part of the reason that the investment is coming into these places is because of the expectation that they can do more. And there is also a realization of the practical side of this. So it might be possible if you're a libertarian, you might think that, um, you know, anything goes as long as it's not harming other people directly, as long as you're not infringing on the rights of other people. But of course, there are more controversial things that you that you could do, uh, which aren't normally allowable in society, which you probably don't want to do if you're just starting out because you don't want to attract too much attention to yourself and you don't want negative publicity. And you might not even want those kinds of things going on in your in your um, privately owned community. And that's totally fine as well. Um, so, so far, there have been these things implemented. And the one that I'd say is the most developed in its thinking around what is going to be possible within the ZA law is Prospera on the island of Rautan. They've dedicated a lot of time and resource to developing a very extensive legal framework for how all kinds of interactions will operate. Um, Prospera is a very interesting place to visit. And they've got a great team. They've got some great buildings. They've got great plans for the future. They've just made um, acquisition, an acquisition of a very uh, nice hotel complex called uh, Pristine Bay. Um, but again, they are kind of an early stage and they've, they've done a lot of thinking. But um, 
the extent to which they can actually implement these things is still pretty early. I see. And so the idea would be, hey, look, it's low tax zone. It might attract capital. It may attract workers, maybe local or people who are in either in that country or in nearby neighboring countries because, hey, I could get a job here, that kind of thing. So are we seeing that kind of the beginnings of that sort of thing, like workers coming in and businesses coming in to set up? Yeah, and that's a really encouraging aspect of the whole setup. Um, and just before I answer that, another thing I would add as well, Stefan, is that people often look at things like low tax and they think, oh, this business is going to move there because it can pay like 21 versus like 23% tax and therefore that's economically viable. But one of the other key advantages with these ZAs is that actually for a lot of people, the whole process of having to go through all of your accounts and re reveal them to some uninvolved third party and have to commission expensive lawyers and accountants to make sure everything is is kind of kosher within your your business like that whole process is something that can be really simplified or potentially even abandoned completely with the free private cities model and potentially with the ZA model and that's something as well that I think is is just a key thing to point out that we do live in this kind of crazy system uh, whereby there's a huge amount of resource societally that goes into just accounting and working out what tax you have to pay. And that's a great deadweight loss, um, I, I would say. Um, but on the job side, yeah, it's early days and it's small scale. But when I went to Morazan, I was able to meet a lady who had uh, called Rosa, who had initially set up a small shack near to the initial construction site of Morazan. And she's quite a low income worker within uh within that area on Choloma, which is not a particularly affluent area area near to San Pedro Sula over in the uh, northwest of Honduras. And so she had a very basic setup, uh, a corrugated iron kind of hut that she was using, no electrical equipment, but she was kind of entrepreneur and she saw, oh look, there's some stuff going on there. I'm gonna go over there and sell some food to the workers there. And so she started to do that and then the, the people that were running Morazan said, hey, um, we noticed that you're selling stuff near to our um, property. Um, would you be interested in becoming a resident um, of our of our city? And um, of course, this comes with um, some fees like they, they offered a, like a very, very low fee for this because uh, they want they wanted to have her. But they also like, wanted to make it clear that this is a place where we offer you a service and you pay something for it. And in return, you can do business here. And so she was. She said, yes, I'd love to become uh, a resident of this place. And I was able to visit her in uh, in November. And I saw pictures of her, like, corrugated iron shack. And now she's got her own standalone business space that she's renting. She's got a restaurant. She's employing staff. She's got electrical equipment, like a fridge, uh, that she can use for selling ice creams to people she's and she's got like this air of confidence it's like yeah like i've done this in the last six months and it's me like no one has come in like, no one from the government has come and said hey here's a like training course on how to be an entrepreneur here's some like money to help you get started like she's done that all by herself by just interacting purely voluntarily with people um that's just one small example stefan but it, I, I like to use that because it's it's not about you know, the wealthy international section of Honduras who went and studied in the US and has come back and now they've got a great job, um, you know, working as, on, on something like big that they might be doing in America, but they're doing it in, in Honduras. This is like simple, low level, bottom up economic development. And it's really cool to see this happening. I could also give you examples like higher level stuff, um, which is going on within the Zillage, which is also really exciting and cool. Like Prosper employing like... Uh, it's not loads of people, but it's like tens of people. I think they've got 70 to 80 people employed there now. And these are like really good high-end jobs as well. So they are providing those high-end jobs. Um, but yeah, like it's cool to see the ZAs have been providing jobs like across that entire socioeconomic spectrum. What about this idea of infrastructure provision? So I suppose, obviously, as these are early projects, now, obviously, as an Austrian, you understand the concept of capital accumulation. And these are societies who might not have had enough time to really build up a big capital stock. What does it look like in terms of infrastructure and things like, okay, internet, 
you know, hot water and all these other aspects around those uh, ZEs. What's that? What's the story there so far? So there's definitely an argument to be made um, for there being services which are managed in a more centralized way within a purely property rights based system. And that's what they have at the moment, really, in places like in, in Modazan and in Prospera. Uh, when you go into Prospera, sorry, when you go into Morazan, uh, there's a there's a very nice road that you, the gates will open. There's a company managing the security. So this is one of the most secure parts of, you know, Honduras or certainly this area. Choloma, the city that neighbors Morazan, uh, is notorious for having very bad, violent crime. And one of the key things that workers find attractive about working in Morazan is that they've got a private company that manages the security. So when you show your pass, you go in and there's a nice road that takes you to the uh, <laughs> to the, the centre of the activity, um, which is in very stark contrast to the area outside where the roads are just pothole dirt tracks. There's there's really not a lot going on there. Um, so part of what the fees go to uh, when businesses are there is maintaining those roads. And the same, like when you're in um, Prospera, you can see around that it's a very nice area, but also there are challenges public areas which aren't owned by prospera there's really like bad infrastructure so those kinds of things are provided but where possible they're just using the private approach so i believe that like wi-fi in modern for example that's provided purely privately and they had a private company come in to provide wi-fi to the residents that wanted it uh and uh they're they're people that are practical business-minded they want market solutions they've got limited time of course, they don't want to have to manage like people's Wi-Fi if there's a private solution for it. So uh, that tends to be what's happening. But I do think that when you've got people living together in an area, um, there is a case for, to be made for like a, a private property owner within a voluntary system managing things like rights of way. And that's what's that's what's happening at the moment in those two projects. Excellent. And so also the question around security, you touched on this earlier that there's essentially private security operating What's the story there in terms of if there were to be more serious security threats there? Like, is has that something that's been explored, spoken about? What's the planning there? As if if the idea is that this is going to grow and become bigger, I think in practical terms it hasn't really been a big problem maintaining the security. One of the issues that they do have the existing ZAs is that they are politically controversial. And I think as we're having this discussion, it is important to mention that there have been some political changes in Honduras. Um, a socialist um, leader, Shamar Castro, was elected um, in, in November and is due to take office towards the end of this month. And one of the key pledges she made was to shut down the ZAs um, or to at least limit the ZAs in some, in some way. And so this has been one of the key topics in the minds of the uh, people that are running them uh, in in the past couple of months. Because one of the reasons that the, one of the things that the foundation tries to do, and that Tipolis, a commercial kind of associated organisation, attempts to do, is to set up legal structures that allow for these uh, new kinds of economic zone to to be protected as far as possible within the existing system. So basically, it acknowledges that we live in the real world. There are, there are, we live in the real world where there are dominant powers that back their claims to property through violence. And that's the reality of the world in which we live. So we have to operate within a legal system. And there are ways in which the legal system can be used in order to create protections. In the case of the ZAs, there's a constitutional protection that sits behind the basic rules, which means that Technically, there's supposed to be a two-thirds majority in parliament to overturn the ZA legislation, which um, Shamara Castro's government is not going to quite have. But that's a theoretical legal argument. There's also an international treaty uh, which, with the country of Kuwait, which which backs some of the protections in the ZAs for investment reasons, inward investment reasons. But that's the theoretical way it should work. And obviously, when you have got a country like Honduras, where rule of law is perceived and is is less strong than in than in Western countries. Say, there is a practical reality that you have a president now who is hostile to ZAs and who can make it very difficult for these projects to operate successfully if she wants to. 
And the thing is, although the story to me of what they've achieved so far is really inspiring, they're still small. And there have been very large movements in Honduras, unfortunately, Stefan, that have spread a huge amount of just really malicious misinformation about the ZAs and what they do, like claims that they're expropriating land from people, um, all kinds of claims about the their founders and the unethical activities that they're doing. Like there were even some claims that I was hearing about that, you know, oh, the, 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 the ZA owners want to set up these ZAs so that they can harvest organs and sell them internationally through like some pretend hospital they're going to create there. Just really like out there crazy stuff. And there's been this campaign and there is a small but enthusiastic movement within Honduras that is really like trying to just throw mud at the ZAs and say, well, this is undermining Honduran sovereignty. And this is, uh, you know, not something that our, this is neocolonialism or whatever. You know, there are all these kinds of claims being made uh, about the ZAs. And so this is the political reality. You know, this is the world in which we live and setting up free communities and doing things that are running parallel and, and, and posing a kind of competitive challenge, I guess, to the existing system is, ne- is never going to be something that's easy to do. Um, and I say it is the case that um, within uh, Honduras, there are those challenges, there are those concerns, um, but this kind of stuff is to be expected. And it's part of the reason why we all need to keep making the, making the case um, for why these kinds of things are uh, great for everyone across the socioeconomic spectrum. Because, you know, ultimately, you know, people, people's minds will need to change in a system uh, in order for um, these things not to be kind of overthrown or um, uh, impeded in, in some way. But, uh, but I think that can happen probably most practically through the practical demonstration of the benefits they bring, such as, such as jobs to these communities. So essentially, it's about winning hearts and minds to help ha- have some level of defense or some level of not being uh, aggressed on by the government of their country. Uh, I'm also curious as well, is there any, is, what's the story in terms of Bitcoin usage in the ZS? Is there, are there people using it or not really? So within Prospera, they have accepted some payments in Bitcoin and they are open to, to doing that for various things. And this is more to do with the actual operation of the, uh, of the, the kind of company itself. And there are some companies that have some transactions happening in Bitcoin uh, within Prospera. Um, I was speaking to the the founder of the project, Eric Brimmon, while I was there. And he was saying, actually, um, you know, El Salvador, there's all this noise about El Salvador adopting Bitcoin. But actually, we adopted Bitcoin first uh, in Honduras here through the <laughs> ZX. And uh, I suppose that's technically true because within the ZA system, uh, they are able to accept any international currency and use it as a kind of tender. And so that's something that the guys in Prosper were keen to say, hey, this is allowed here and we're setting up some frameworks through which this could this could function. So uh, that's ha- that did happen in Prospera, kind of on that small scale. Uh, it's not being used, as far as I'm aware, in, I don't know a lot about Orchidea yet, uh, which is one of the other projects. Uh, I'm, uh, it's not really being used in, in Morazan, um, but uh, I did talk to them about it. And I said, you know, you could, um, I'm here, I'd like to pay for my, my meal. I didn't have Honduran limperas at this point. I had US dollars, and I was like, I'd like to pay for my meal, and you know, uh, how how can I do it? And there was an initial problem because I was like, oh, I couldn't get to a cash machine, and I'd just come from El Salvador, and I was kind of in the mindset that yeah, everything's easy because I've always got my smartphone, so I can just pay in Bitcoin, like you know, or or what or US dollars, whatever's easiest. So we, there was a little discussion around, you know, why don't the businesses here just set up a Bitcoin wallet? Then they can accept Bitcoin from people like me that might come and visit. And uh, I think in general, people are pretty open to that, but it's like low down their priority list when you're talking about someone that's running a small bit like restaurant or whatever um so there's a little bit to say there but um yeah the big story with bitcoin is is certainly el salvador yeah sure sure uh in terms of people who want to go to some of these zetas what's the story in terms of you know residents uh is it just basically that you need to be able to get an entry right into honduras because it's inside Honduras, and that's really what it is. And then if you actually wanted to live inside one of these, you would need to get some kind of PR there, or how, how does that work? Yeah, it's basically determined by Honduran immigration law. And if you wanted to become a resident there, it would be pretty similar to becoming a resident, 
somewhere else, but you would just have a, a contract that you signed with the ZA operator, and that would set out the terms of what you what you can and can't do while you're while you're in the um, while you're in the ZA. And it's it's really simple stuff. One of the things that Titus Gable emphasizes in his writing is that we look at the current legal system that we have, and we see that it's really really complicated and we have people that dedicate their entire lives like large swathes of the population that dedicate their entire lives to interpreting the law and so we assume this has to be the norm when new societies are function but one of the things that Titus says a lot and I agree with is that actually reasonable people don't need thousands hundreds of laws even to interact with each other there are pretty basic common sense principles about how you should and shouldn't interact with other people like you should respect other people's property. You shouldn't uh, infringe on their their rights to do as they please, as long as they're not causing harm to you. And in the ZAs, this is basically how it's working in practice, and there's not a problem. Like for example, when I was uh, when I was in the Morazan, they were telling me about problems with litter. Like um, this is again with like Rosa. Like outside her shop, people were leaving litter lying around. And they said, hey, like, this is a public area. According to your contract, it says that you're not allowed to, you have to maintain the and respect public areas within Morazan. So we need a solution to this. And obviously the solution, she was like, okay, right, there's litter. I need to put a bin out there and I need to uh, make sure that I'm emptying that. And I'm telling people like, please don't throw litter on the floor. There's a bin, et cetera. Like super simple solution. But they didn't come in and say, hey, we need a bin here uh, as the operator of the city. They just said, in your contract, Rosa, there's this, problem there's this clause around like littering public areas so you need to come up with a solution and <laughs> she came up with a simple solution that's basically the way that it's operating at this scale when things get more complicated of course you want to have um more complex solutions but again that can all be provided on the market according to my view and there's great work being done by Rothbard outlining how that can work Titus Gable's done a lot of work on this there's loads of people that have written about free market uh, solutions for for legal for legal problems and so, um, yeah, once we get to the larger scales, that's what I would hope um, and expect that we will start to see. Yeah. And so are there any other projects elsewhere around the world that the Free Private Cities Foundation is looking at at this point? Or is it mostly the Honduran ones? So there are, there are various projects in uh, Honduras. Um, we also have some relationships with projects in uh, North America. Um, which are more like intentional communities. So people uh, coming together in order to uh, live in a more like libertarian way within the, um, within the existing frameworks of, of those countries' legal systems. And um, if you like, I can post a link to the Liberty in Our Lifetime conference in your show notes, which has got a list of a few projects that appeared uh, at, our, at our conference, which took place in Mulheim, Switzerland back in October. And that will give people a... Uh, a few examples of projects which aren't legally quite as um, quite as uh, able to go as far as the Conjuran ZAs, but also have like strong, freedom-minded, voluntarist, libertarian elements, um, which uh, which are, are being implemented to varying degrees: North America, uh, Europe, um, Middle East, etc. Fantastic. Well, I think that's probably a good spot to wrap up there, uh, Peter. Where can people find you and uh, your organization online? So the uh, they can find me on Twitter. That's probably the, the best place in terms of the content I post about economics, free private cities and Bitcoin. Um, my handle there is Peter M.I., the letters M.I. Young. Uh, I'm, we also have the Free Private Cities website, www.freeprivatecities.com. Um, another thing I'd like to flag, Stefan, is that I mentioned there the Liberty in Our Lifetime conference that we held in Mulheim last year. Uh, we're planning on holding a... Um, bigger and better conference in Prague uh, this October. And so if people are interested in finding out more about that, that conference, it's going to be a place where people that want to find out more about voluntary communities and this free private cities idea can come together and they can interact. They can learn more about all of the projects I've mentioned today and what the future projects are. I would say uh, follow us and follow the, the Free Private Cities Foundation, which is at Free Private City on Twitter. And we'll be posting information in the next few weeks about that conference. Uh, we're looking for sponsors for that conference. We had some great sponsors last year, and we want to find more people from the uh, libertarian community who might want to sponsor that. Uh, we're looking for attendees. We're probably going to have about three to 400 people there in Prague. It'd be great if you could come along as well, Stefan. 
Um, and uh, yeah, that's that's the key thing that I would say. Like, um, follow us on Twitter. Check out our website. We've got some great articles. But also keep out and keep an eye out for our Liberty on our, our Lifetime conference, uh, which we're going to be hosting uh, later this year. Fantastic. Yeah, I'll definitely have to uh, check my calendar and see if I can make it along. Uh, I unfortunately couldn't make the last one, but uh, maybe this time, maybe this year. So, uh, yeah. So, uh, look, thanks very much, Peter, for joining me today. Stefan, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, really appreciate you inviting me on. As I've said to you before, I've been a big fan of your show for years, and it's one of the shows that I used to listen to when I was just getting into Bitcoin. So it's a huge honor to be invited on and have this opportunity to chat to you today. And uh, I've really enjoyed it. If you're enjoying the show, make sure to leave a review and share it with your family and friends so they can also find out. The website is stefanlevera.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you in the Citadels.